Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Ramana. I guess sometimes you go by C.Y. Ramana, right? That's kind of like a pen name that I picked up, but uh -huh. no one really calls me that. Uh-huh. Like E.M. Forrester or something. Um, <laughs> and uh, Ramana, I must say that of all the people I've met and interviewed, I don't think I've run into anybody who's actually been into as many things as you have in, in your history, going back to the 60s. And, you know, you, somebody might brush you off as a dilettante, which means a superficial dabbler, but you weren't superficial and you weren't dabbling. I mean, you dove hook, line, and sinker uh, into so many different things and actually, you know, became a teacher of many of these things. I've, I found it quite fascinating. And there was a time when still I would have brushed that off as a sort of a... a a confusion or a drifting or something, but these days I would see it as um, just the perfect preparation for who you are now, you know, absolutely, mm. we're all on different paths and you did exactly what was right for you and here you are. <laughs> Sometimes uh, people ask me, how did you do as much as you did? And they said, it's kind of easy if you've never had a job. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Your job was doing spiritual stuff. <laughs> exactly. And the things that I was teaching brought me the income, you know. Um, but, yeah. Uh, I think I, I think one time in my life for about eight months I had a job and I realized it really wasn't for me. All right. You were working so, for a cable TV. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I read that thing. Um, yeah. Well, it's great. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll be talking about how you feel that all of that um, varied uh, exploration has um, kind of gifted you in your teaching capacity today. Maybe you feel it has, maybe it hasn't. Maybe some of it was, was uh, you know, a waste of time, and, but maybe not. Um, it's, you certainly must be able to relate to people who are on just about any trip imaginable because you've also been on it at some point. So... Uh, Maybe since we've tantalized people with that, you know, little vision of all the stuff you've done, maybe it might be good to give us a history in as much detail or brevity as you feel is appropriate of, you know, what your path has been. I think that the probably the beginning of it really happened in my teen years where I was exposed to, I had a, a teacher named um, Stephen Gaskin. I remember reading his thing, Monday Night Class. Exactly, yeah. right. Very good. Very few people know about that. Oh, I read his stuff way back in the day, you know. Right. So he did have a Monday Night Class. Mm -hmm. It was um, uh, at, a, at a concert hall that usually they had uh, the family dog had moved from the Avon Ballroom to a bigger venue for the weekends, and mm -hmm. uh, they call it Playland at the Beach. So... On Monday mornings, it was—I mean, Monday evenings—it was empty. So there were probably two, twenty-five hundred, two people coming to that. Amazing. Then we're we're talking start. about San Francisco here, for those who don't right, know. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, In its heyday. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, and I was also—he pointed me to a teacher, uh, Suzuki Roshi. You've probably heard of him mm -hmm. before. Um, he was the first Zen master to come to the United States. Uh, I didn't have a close relationship with him, but uh, I did really, uh, from Steve, Stephen's teachings and um, and from Suzuki Roshi's teachings, one of the things that uh, that was brought forward to me, and I was young at the time, 16, 17 years old, was that the. Uh, that kind of where we want to get to is the natural state, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess the big question I had 
and I did give this to Suzuki Roshi at the time, where I asked him, if it's the natural state, then why is it that everybody is not just in it all the time, right? Uh, when I get exposed to Hinduism, they even went as far as saying, well, it's not only your natural state, it is actually who you are. So this really underlined this question for me, which started a quest back in the 60s for me. What did he is, say when you asked him why people weren't in it all the time? He said, keep practicing and you'll find out. <laughs> That's a yeah, interesting little... <laughs> Go ahead, continue. <laughs> well, actually, that kind of you know comes full circle because everything kind of changed when I met my teacher, Papaji. Mm -hmm where um, I actually I felt like when I saw him, he was singing my tune, mm -hmm. right? He said that his quest was uh, going from temple to temple to temple all throughout India and uh, asking this question about, uh, you know, this, how is it that I see God, to see the God-like state every moment? How, can, how said, can I do that, you mean? Right, exactly. Right. And he said every single... Ashram, he said, minus none. Every single ashram we went to gave him some version of come into the ashram, study with me, do the practices, and you will get what you want. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said that he would look in some of these ashrams with these men with these gray, this gray beards coming down to the floor who've been studying their whole lives. He didn't find anybody awake. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, so he said it wasn't until he met his master, Ramana Maharshi, that uh, he was the first one that actually did not give him that answer. Good. I should ask you what answer he gave him. Uh, might as well, and then we'll loop back and continue the story. Uh, it was really the moment of Papaji's awakening. Uh, it was all about discovering who or what is perceiving. Mm -hmm. So what Ramana uh, Maharshi asked him was, we said, uh, he says, what's it like when you see God? And he says, it's just a feeling of peace, peace of unity. And he, since he was a Christian devotee, he said sometimes this, uh, in that feeling, this uh, vision of a Krishna would appear. Mm -hmm. So Ramana asked him, uh, well, uh, do you see him right now? And he said, and he looked around, and he said, no, sir, I do not see him now. And uh, he said, well, that which comes, and he says, well, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. So Ramana Maharshi gave him the feedback, uh, that which comes and goes isn't it. Right. So therefore, you've been looking for the wrong thing all this time. Mm -hmm. So he instructed him to, uh, for the one who's looking out at God and looking out at that world, to let that one turn 180 degrees to look back, mm -hmm. not inward, but back. Because there's so much of go within, right? He yeah. said, look back and find out who or what is perceiving. What's the difference between in and back? Back is directional. Uh huh. This is the way. This is one of the things that I kind of figured out. This, this, just uh, as an aside, in um, in this um, work that I do called Radical Awakening, it all has to do with perception, how it is that consciousness is um, perceiving through the sense organs. Mm -hmm. Seeing is directional. So that means it's not we're not like lizards, you know, where we can like go around and see the sides and behind. It really is looking forward. So to have that 
which is looking forward and out, to turn 180 degrees back to look back to see mm-hmm. what is actually perceiving. So that's back. My sense of when people say go within, oftentimes, and I see this all the time, you ask them to go within, what's, what's the first thing they do? They close their eyes, right? Yeah, right. And they go into this kind of sensorial world of, uh, of what they're perceiving in their sensations in their inner world. And that is very different than actually getting a sense of who is looking through this, who or what is looking through these eyes, who or what is listening through these ears. So what Ramana Maharshi's, uh, and this is a seminal piece of the Radical, radical Awakening work, is I really based the whole thing, and it's perfect we're talking about this in the very beginning, because this is, it was Papaji's awakening, uh, and Ramana Maharshi's instruction to him, and which was so seminal to my own, that, um, that I based uh, the most seminal piece in the Radical Awakening work on this, which is, he, when he said he looked back, he saw that there was not, no thing there, but a presence of something that was infinite and tied in and connected. Mm-hmm. My wife bless just sneezed. Yeah, she, he, he, Ramana says, bless you. <laughs> so that's back, and that was the instruction. And he said, what he, he, he said that the, the, the seer, the one that the true seer, or what is called in... Um, in Hinduism called the true perceiver, was revealed uh, that the self was looking looking directly at the self. Mm-hmm. And that is, by the way, kind of classically in Indian literature, that is one of the, uh, uh, the definitions of an awakening, where they say an awakening takes place when the true perceiver becomes aware of its um, existence through its direct perception of itself. Yeah, this is all very reminiscent of the Gita. There's verses about, you know, withdrawing the senses from their objects like a tortoise withdrawing its legs into its shell, you know. So that's kind of like the turning inward or turning back. And then, you know, the self realizes the self by the self and, and so on. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's age-old stuff, but, um, you know, has uh, often been misconstrued and forgotten and, you know, just not, not practically available. One of the opportunities I got that one was that I got to have one that during the time period I was with Papaji was um, we uh, we had a lot of time because there was only one satsang in the morning mm-hmm. and you know usually we would have like lunch or something or dinner with him in his house but there's a lot of free time so I really took it upon myself to study the Indian classics at that time mm-hmm. um, and then when I moved to Tirvanamalai. Uh, with the Ramana Ashram uh, is uh, that it I was made available to all of Ramana's teaching at that time, which is they have a library there that mm. is, has over 200 books on Ramana Maharshi. Uh-huh. So I just kind of spent many years just pouring over everything. Hmm. I figured since my name is Ramana, I should know something. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah, better. <laughs> huh. So you live in Tir. Tir- you live there more or less these days anyway, don't you now? I have a house there, and mm-hmm. I'm there probably uh, maybe a quarter to a third uh, of the year sometimes, depending on the year. Okay. Uh, most of the time, I am on the road living out of two suitcases, mm-hmm. and it's been like that since 98. Uh, mm-hmm. 
it's an enjoyable lifestyle lifestyle if you're cut out for it. I know. I kind of feel like well, I'm getting, I, recently I've been feeling like I'm getting kind of old for this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the energy is starting to run down. You know, I mean, uh, two years ago I got to see my wife. Uh, maybe I think I counted the weeks about seven weeks out of the whole year. Wow. Huh, she must be a very patient person. <laughs> <laughs> it's wearing thin, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so there's so much we could talk about here. I mean, we could we could keep delving into the whole you know Papaji meeting Ramana Maharshi thing, or we could go back and keep tracing your story and then come back to the thing. How would you like to proceed? Like the, I feel like that uh, that um, that interaction with Papaji that the, the most important piece was that that meeting of his awakening mm-hmm. uh, it was it's, it was the thing that turned everything around for him now pretty much anyone who's read about Papaji or Ramana Maharshi has heard about that interchange um, but obviously probably only a small fraction of those people have had have had a similar experience when they read about it so there was there's some missing ingredient for most people in, in terms of just you know hearing the words that transpired uh, versus actually Clicking into the experience that that took place, and and perhaps that experience was by virtue of Ramana's presence. There was some transmission or something that took place, which you're not going to get out of a book. What, what would you have to say about that? Um, I'm writing a book right now, Radical Awakening. Of course, it's 18 years in the making, but mm-hmm. I'm actually in the final edit of, edit of it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I address that uh, directly, and uh, in the book I, I start off by saying this stuff, you know, radical awakening works, but I don't really know why. Right. You know, it's a mystery why people wake up in a radical awakening session. Um, there must be something. I mean, there could be something about a transmission. You know. Um, you feel that. I mean, if you're in the presence of somebody like Papaji or Ramana Maharshi or some great saint, you feel like you're sitting in front of a blast furnace. <laughs> you know, there's a darshan effect, that, that, and the air gets saturated, the atmosphere is saturated with this sort of divinity, that, and it kind of soaks into you to use. Yeah, you know. So it's conducive, perhaps. That, that kind of uh, proximity is conducive to a spiritual awakening. Right, I, I, I do agree. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could say something just... I don't want to go all over the map, but I, I, know, right. oh, I know I know where we're going with this. Uh-huh. Uh, there is something I want to say about that moment, you know, and that people not getting that experience, because I really do want to talk about that, because that is the focus of the Radical Awakening work, is that interchange. Uh, but to, to kind of make a side uh, step about the transmission, first mm-hmm. of all, uh, one of the things that, uh, that Papaji said often, was uh, he had a big picture of Ramana Maharshi in his uh, in Satsang Bhavan behind him, right. and uh, he would say that uh, if there's anything that you're getting from me, um, it's not from me. Right. It's from my teacher, and he pointed to the big picture of Ramana Maharshi behind him. Mm-hmm. Ramana Maharshi said pretty much the same thing. He said, uh, "Don't look at this aging old man's body." This, you're not getting anything from this. Uh, if there's anything you're getting from me, you're getting it from my master. You're getting it from my teacher. And he would point to, to the mountain, to the mountain Arunachala. Mm-hmm. So if we understand 
um, classically now, let's go back into classically what Arunachala, um, how it's viewed by the Southern Indians. They say that it is the actual body of Shiva himself. Mm-hmm. That they say that his abode is in Kailash, his house is there. But, uh, and they have a whole story about how it is that he came to this place, um, which is uh, kind of interesting too. An archaeologist um, took a lot of interest in the idea of when he was told that uh, that on our around the rock, the granite around Arunachala is some of the oldest found on the planet, because hmm. that's how it's spoken about. This is an original place and what's called in India uh, the uh, first yuga in the first age. Um, so when you look at well what is Shiva then what are they talking about it's not some blue guy that's got a bunch of arms carrying stuff if you go back to the Vedas um, they use the word Shiva but not as a god they, they talk about Shiva as a principle the principle of this infinite consciousness that is uh, in meditation that is reflecting on the infiniteness of itself, infinite consciousness. So when we talk about, and Ramana Maharshi used to say that the, um, that Arunachala is the source of the silent transmission. So here's this thing, if you look at it, it looks like a big pile of, you know, rocks and dirt. But when you're actually there, and um, you know, I've heard about it for so long, all the time that I was with Papa, he always pointed to Arunachala, but I never really wanted to leave him. Right? I didn't have another interest in it, but uh, when um, the year he died, in 97, he had his Maha Samadhi. Uh, I had my ticket booked to India already, so I figured, well, what's the use of going to Lucknow where he is? I'll go to his teacher's teacher, right? go to the source of the silent transmission. It's kind of interesting. Um, that year, most of Lucknow, I noticed the whole community around Papaji were, was there. That was my surprise. Intervamana, vam, I can't say it. Actually, it's, uh, it's, the Indians call it Tiranamalai. Mm. Anamalai is Shiva. That's mm-hmm. another name for Shiva. And Tiru means the, the great or the revered. So it's Tiranamalai, the great mm-hmm. Shiva. Is, uh, and so the town is, is named after the mountain, after Shiva. So if you look at uh, that Shiva being this infinite consciousness, um, if we could look at for a moment classically again, um, the function of a guru, right? Because when people ask me, oh, this is kind of, this is kind of interesting, when I went to go see Amma, she asked me, um, who's your guru? And I said, uh, Arunachala. And this huge smile came over her face. Mm-hmm. And she kind of shook, shook her head like this and she said, very good. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <clears throat> so the function of the guru is um, as long as there is a, uh identification with the body and the mind, even if there's a trace of identification, um, it's classically said that it's useful to, uh, to have some shape or some form that one can reflect back that can reflect back mm-hmm. who that true self is. Mm. So Arnachala has that function. And uh, there is 
clearly, anybody who's been there can tell you this, that there is a transmission that comes from it. You know, I do find that it is the source of the silent transmission. And most of the people who live there agree with that. Most of the people who've been there, you know, who've kind of tuned into it, have a sense of that anyway. So it is something on the physical plane. It is a thing that reflects it back. It's just like I always kind of smile sometimes when I say that my guru never really is up to any mischief. But so many of them are. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Or an actual would have a hard time sleeping with the young ladies in the area. Well, it's interesting. I mean, if you reduce the earth to the size of a billiard ball, it's actually smoother than a billiard ball, despite the Himalayas and the Marianas Trench and all that. You know, it's very smooth. So in a way, it's ridiculous to think of this teeny, teeny little bump on a little speck of dust in a vast cosmos being somehow the embodiment of a universal principle, Shiva, you know, which is completely unbounded and cosmic. And yet I'm completely kind of in tune with what you're saying in, in terms of mountains or individuals or whatever uh, being uh, portals, you could say, or conduits through which that uh, universal consciousness can somehow be ex- radiated more powerfully than in other places. Absolutely. You know, and so being in the proximity of uh, that mountain or that person or, or so on can be highly conducive to one's awakening. Yeah, the way Anomaly Swami said it was, he said that, uh, he says consciousness is like water. It's everywhere. It's in, you know, even in the desert. It's like, you know, 13, 12% or something. There's mm-hmm. water there on the planet. But he said there are places and people and situations where there are uh, concentrations of this water. And then he points, <laughs> then he points to Arunachala and he yeah. says... Arunachala is the biggest waterfall that you could find of this on the planet. Oh, very cool. I remember I went to Sedona one time with my wife. We were camping, and we were, we went to the Chamber of Commerce, and we got a map of the power spots. <laughs> and then, right, we, yeah. then we then we went hiking out, and, and yeah, right. and you kept running into all these people and very sheepishly asking one another, uh, "Have you seen the power spot? You know, <laughs> are we on the right?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> ah, so. So that's an interesting point we've just covered, um, you know, because people, there's a certain um, belittling of gurus that takes place in today's spiritual culture, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of confusion and controversy about it, and people might be skeptical about the Aranatula thing, but it's interesting to ponder that, you know, human beings, if they're properly, you know, equipped, or even a mountain, could be a, a uh, a place that radiates uh, consciousness, which of course is everywhere, but it's some. Well, you know, I mean, the electrical field is everywhere, but this light bulb over me radiates it in a certain way. That's beautiful. Yeah. One of the ways to look at it, I think that anybody who has been to what you might call a power spot, you know, mm-hmm. if you've been to Lords or you've been to Machu Picchu or that kind of thing, kind of tuned into that energy, um, they'll have no problem, you know, understanding. Um, uh, like what a power spot is. One of the things that, uh, and it's been an interest in my life. Um, and what I look at is that every one of these power spots, Sedona being one of them, um, I spent a lot of time in Sedona. I used to spend uh, two months of the year there on a regular basis doing trainings there. Um, 
that each one has its own um, energy signature is kind of like mm. how you turn it, an energy signature. Um, Sedona is uh, considered to be the energy signature for me is like, it's kind of like a portal to everywhere. You know? mm-hmm. I'm Boynton Canyon. I ran into some guy in Boynton Canyon one time, and he, he says, I used to travel all over the world, but now I just do it from here. Right? Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, there's some out there people there. I actually thought about living there for a while and ended up <laughs> older instead. Um, but uh, so the energy signature, signature of what I see are, of Arunachala is that uh, it quiets the mind and opens the heart. Mm-hmm. That's the energy signature of Arunachala. And one of the things that I find is that uh, I do a lot of traveling, as, as we talked about, uh, but once a year I see kind of the uh, epoch of what I do yearly is I take a very small group, only 21 people, to uh, uh, to a pilgrimage to Arunachala and have them sit there mm-hmm. and receive the transmission. Everything about the uh, the pilgrimage that I do is tuning into that energy um, at a more and more refined and deeper level. Uh, but what I have to say about that is that the people who actually come to Arunachala to this pilgrimage are called. It's not like you're telling them something, they go, oh, that sounds like a cool thing, I think I'll check that out. And uh, if you read the Arunachala Puranas, which is, again, a classic piece of uh, literature about Arunachala itself, um, where it says that that uh, Arunachala calls people. Mm. You are invited to it. It doesn't mean that you um, respond, because not everybody responds to it. Um, you know that you're you're called and that you don't have to go, but uh, uh, but if you go there, they say that everything just opens up to um, for everything to happen for you to be there. So there's already kind of a if we look back at the uh, the history of Arunachala, a lot of reasons why we could say, well, why is what makes a power spot a power spot? What is it about this particular mountain? Well, the Hindus say that you know, well, it's a, it's the embodiment of uh, of uh, Lord Shiva himself. This concentration of pure consciousness. Um, because of that, you look at the history. They say this all the way through the yugas, through the ages, that uh, it has been a magnet for fully realized beings. Hmm. Ramana Maharshi is only one of. Maybe I don't know how many hundreds of thousands over the over the uh, over the uh, over the the, the the yugas, the ages, coming to this mountain. And what happens is that they they drop their bodies and they stay there. Right? Mm. So you you're walking into the people. Well, I remember the first year when I was there in '97 um, with my friends from Lucknow. We were we called it a Buddha field. It was just this strong field. And maybe we could say it was because we're walking through all of these fully the energy of these fully realized beings. Most of the people who um, who remember Ramana um, and are they're older now, of course, but they remember him being there. Most of them will say that when they go to Ramana's Mahasamadhi, the place where he's buried, um, and go to the place where he gave satsang that they'll say it's as if he never left. Mm-hmm. So in Ramana Maharshi is only one small example of I don't know how many fully realized beings. Um, 
whose energy is there. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. So what I so what I do is, is that I uh, Ramana Maharshi and his um, he has a series of verses called uh, uh, the Marital Garland of Verses, and this all are, are are verses about his love and his relationship with Arunachala. The first one, by by the way, is um, uh, Thou dost root out the ego of all who meditate on me in the heart, O Arunachala. Another one of his verses talks about how uh, you're like caught in the net of grace if you're invited. Hmm. So um, I feel like even though I'm giving satsangs really all over the world right now, um, that there's a level in the background that I'm beating this drum to find out, like casting the net, to see who is getting caught in this um, in this net of grace. Uh, it's kind of funny. I was doing the satsang in um, and uh, in Encinitas, which is a little town north of San Diego, uh, a number of years back, and uh, I, I started telling the story about how how Papaji did not send me out as a teacher. Uh, I noticed a small group of people, when I said that, walked out. Really? Yeah. Huh. They didn't, but to, they you didn't get, have the stamp of approval. Uh, well, I didn't get to the punchline for them yet. <laughs> <laughs> Impatient crowd. The punchline about that was he said, I sent no teachers out. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen the video of him that's made... Uh, for the interview is when they're asking him, um, Papaji, if you could summarize in um, just a few words what it is that you're offering. And he said, uh, no teacher, no teaching, no student. Hmm. One of the things they talk about in this work, um, of Ramana Maharshi's work, is that uh, there's a god there. There's Shiva has a thousand and one different manifestations, as you may know. Uh, each one of its own name. One of them is Dakshinamurti. Dakshinamurti is the is the Shiva that uh, transmits the silent transmission. Um, and in that, Ramana Maharshi talks about how the teaching is uh, is not only in silence, but the teaching itself is silence. So, how is it that one could make a teaching out of that? And Papaji, really, you know, we talked about earlier about gurus, and you know, there's a lot of controversy about them. And he was um, very suspicious about most gurus. He one time said that in all my travels all over the world, the number of fully realized beings that I've actually um, encountered, I can count on one hand. So, That's an interesting comment. Did he travel around a lot? Oh yes. I didn't oh, yes. think. I didn't realize that. I thought he kind of just sat in luck now, but. Huh. No, if you there's a, actually a great three-volume set, ah. um, about 1,200 pages um, that David Godman did. I don't know if you know about David. Sure, yeah. He's quite a historian. I should read it. Yes, but what's so funny is is that it's here. It's 1,200 pages of his life, right? Mm -hmm. The name of the book is called Nothing Ever Happened. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's so many rich nuggets in what you're talking about. Um, let's try to delve into them all. Um, 
first of all, when you were talking about Arunachala, it was so reminiscent of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I watched again recently, where Richard Dreyfus is called and he doesn't know why, you know, and and he's 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 playing with the mashed potatoes and he's saying this means something, you know, and he has just this yearning to get to Devil's Tower in, in Wyoming, yeah. and he and he finally gets there and there's a group of other people who are also called and they don't know why. Exactly. Oh you know? my God, that's perfect. <laughs> and then Thank they're they're scrambling up the mountain and the government is trying to gas them and everything and then he finally gets there and the little aliens congratulate him and put their arms around him like you're the one who made it <laughs> it was such a beautiful metaphor that that yes. movie thank you for that that is perfect yeah it speaks well to it um and uh god there's so much in what you just said so the whole thing about silence and, and a 1200 page book in, entitled nothing ever happened um to me, that speaks of the paradox of, of the kind of multidimensionality of life, where you could write a 1,200-page book full of all kinds of interesting anecdotes and, and teachings and wisdom and, and everything, but if you boil it down to its fundamental essence, nothing ever happened. You know? <laughs> but if you just start with that, and we all just sit there and say, nothing ever happened, then you, then you kind of don't have the the pathless path to to lead you to that genuine realization you know all you have is a concept one way you can look at it is uh, like a dream mm -hmm. you have a dream and when you wake up in the morning did what happened really happened will it happen will it certainly seem like it at a time I mean especially mm -hmm. those dreams that you know seem realer than reality those kinds mm -hmm. of dreams uh, and yet in the moment that you wake up you realize wow None of that really happened. Yeah. It was all in my imagination. And this is how this life, classically, you know, in Hinduism is looked at. That this life is... Uh, my favorite piece is, uh, of, is the followers of Brahma, okay? Um, as you probably know, in Hinduism, there's, uh, there's a trilogy of gods. Uh, this is the way that is presented by the Aryans who... Um, um, the uh, Hindu Aryans that uh, moved from the south... Uh, they brought this pantheon of gods. Previous to that, there was only the Vedas, which was in Sanskrit and very kind of esoteric. Most people couldn't even read it because it was a dead language, right? It was priests. So they um, came up with what's called the Badanas, which is a uh, uh, the teachings of the Vedas in story form. And this is where the pantheon of all these Indian gods came. There's some level that I think Indians understand that they're not that they're just principles being spoken about, not like Jesus, who was really seen as this person who walked the earth. You know, they understand it's the stories, the principles that were important. Mm -hmm. So I love this piece about the dream. Mm. Um, Shankara incidentally called the whole life prior to enlightenment the long dream. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> now, what I really what I wanted to say was I really love the way the, the followers of Brahma talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, Brahma, the, the trilogy of gods is Brahma, who they say that uh, he had a he fell asleep and had a dream. That was the beginning of this yuga, of the first yuga. We're in the last yuga, by the way, as you probably know, um, the Kali yuga. Um, and they said we are in Brahma's dream now. We're a character in Brahma's dream. And then there's Vishnu, who is continuing through the dream. Um, 
he keeps coming back in what's called an avatar, which is a uh, a man that is a, a god that's taking a, a man's form. Uh, like, for instance, Krishna was one of his avatar forms. Uh, Lord Rama was one of his avatar forms. But he's always chasing after these demons, right? And at every one of the stories, uh, uh, there's been nine of his incarnations so far, they always get away, right? And they say that... Uh, there's a tenth one that's coming. His name's Kalki. It's the last incarnation. And that's just when he's going to capture, you know, these demons, right? Um, and then um, then comes Shiva, which is the third form. There's the Brahma. Then there's Vishnu coming down and you know, continuing the dream, chasing down this evil, you know, which is so classic. You could just kind of get the, what is that evil really? You know, that's the study of that. Mm-hmm. It's ignorance. And then, um, and then Shiva comes and uh, and destroys the dream. He, everyone sees through it, and there's this waking up process. And everybody wakes up from the dream. So I love this whole thing about it's not just a dream, but it's God's dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a character in God's dream, and you know, there's that uh, chanting that people do, "I am Brahma," you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are the God, that we are the dreamers now. Incidentally, in case people listening at this point are thinking, what is all this Hindu mumbo-jumbo? I just want to remind, <laughs> r- remind them that all of this is, is sort of metaphorical. Um, you know, mm-hmm. all, all mythologies are all metaphorical. And they're meant to illustrate uh, in a way, in a comprehensible way, deep, subtle cosmic principles, you know, mechanics of nature, we could say. And um, so it's not like uh, maybe on some level there is some blue guy with four arms and a <laughs> river coming out of his head or whatever. But um, you know, but really, what that represents is, uh, and, and all this is meant to in, imbue in us is a sort of an understanding of of the mechanics of nature, of cosmic principles. And I, I think physics is great if you, as a layman, even if you dabble a little bit in quantum physics, because all these principles of the world being a dream and so on are beautifully illustrated by modern understanding. You know, you, you get down to the quantum level, and there is no physical universe, um, and that level is very real. And you know, ultimately, there is no other level. <laughs> exactly. um, and like I said before, the Puranas, the whole story form of the Vedas, is a way of illustrating these principles. It's all about the principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I the know, purpose. I just, a, I just got a little kick out of this whole thing about we're in Brahma's dream. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, think. Of, really let's, let's play with that for a minute. I mean, if um, you know, if God is really omnipresent, and you know, and it really completely is the is the warp and woof of everything, is this is the source and substance of everything, then you know, what is actually happening here? Are you and I really having a conversation? Are we really hundreds of miles apart, or or is this just sort of a holographic projection of you know, kind of an all-pervasive intelligence creating forms within itself. In order, and, you know, it's like we do when we dream at night. We kind of have all these entertainments, you know, <laughs> and we wake up and we think, "Well, that was amusing," or "That was scary," or whatever. But whew, it was only a dream. 
and and so on a, on a and and you know we're we're kind of like the microcosms of the macrocosm we we're we're the embodiment in, within our human form so to speak of cosmic principles and so we kind of recapitulate in our in our own experience that which is taking place on a cosmic level namely that the whole thing ultimately is amorphous it's a dream right so if i could kind of jump on the tails of that go for uh, it I'll shut up for a while and let you, let you go. It's, uh, it's really about kind of the shift of uh, the shift that happened for me at my time with Papaji. Mm. Uh, I realized at one point it was really that moment that you're talking about when um, there is the moment of waking up, of realizing every morning we wake up and after a dream and we have this... Uh, this uh, experience, oh, that was just a dream. You know, it's like whatever happened in there lost its significance. So, um, I would classify myself as, was, as, was a, uh, over the decades before I met Papaji, being a, um, a, a practitioner of, uh, 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 Everything under Spirit, the sun. A spiritual practitioner yeah. that is, was actually involved in practices to get to a certain experience, mm -hmm. right? One of the things that uh, uh, that was very clear about that is that every one of those spiritual experiences had a beginning and had a middle and had an end, right? And at the end of that experience, I was always left with, I'm here I am, I'm just me again, right? Maybe a little bit more informed me, someone that can, you know, as Trungpa talks about, has, you know, after a while you start getting a lot of, uh, in spiritual materialism, you got a lot of stories and experiences to go back to and talk about, but essentially it was continuing to be the same me. Um, there was a fundamental me with a, with a primary identification with that that uh, had a kind of foray for a while into a spiritual experience where that dropped away. So, uh, in reflection of uh, the uh, experience that I had uh, with uh, Papaji, which I feel like what really happened was that whole model flipped upside down so that I had a sense that there's this fundamental place of who I am. And then it would go into, um, I call it now, foray into the mind. Okay, I had a foray into the mind, which had this experience that I am this individual separate person. And that had a beginning and a middle and an end. And at the end of that experience of that foray into the mind, without any kind of practices and without any kind of having to remember something or it's kind of like that had its own energy and that energy kind of ran out at one point and when that energy ran out I felt like I dropped back into this place where to kind of reference what you're talking about before that it was almost like waking up from a dream and realizing none of that was real so, at first, I can honestly say that probably there wasn't any more residual time that I had in a sense of being in the true self, 
But the important thing, and the thing I really realized when this thing flipped around, that it was where I returned to that was what was most important. And uh, it was just, it's something that happened that actually had to reflect upon later. You know? But I realized that is, that was the moment of my shift. It wasn't like all of a sudden I'm enlightened anymore. It was like the return place shifted, flipped upside down for me. Hmm. So, elaborate on that a little bit more. Um, so in other words, rather than kind of being uh, oriented with, you know, anchored in your individuality, looking for some deeper universal reality, it flipped so that you were, you were that universal deeper reality living life through an individuality. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, one way of looking at it is we could say that it was like uh, the primary identification shift shifted because um, oh, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. The primary identification shifted. Yes. There's the, a T.S. Uh, Eliot line. He says, we should not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. What happened at that point was I took actual pride before the point I met Papaji of being a good spiritual seeker. Uh -huh. right? yeah, you were major league. I mean, <laughs> you did everything. I, yeah, well, I dedicated my life to it. I didn't have a family. I didn't have a home. I'm just like I was... Just uh, this is all I did, right? It's right. the only thing that kind of, you know, rang my bell. Nothing mm -hmm. else seemed to do that. Um, so to have the spiritual seeker die, um, understand that when I came to Papaji, I had a bag full of practices, and I was just going to Papaji to get the next one, right? Mm, I see. And then he had these big hands, and he would shake his fingers sometimes, and he'd say. No practices. It's like, wait a minute, what do you mean no practices? I mean, I'm a spiritual seeker. This practice is what it's all about. And he said, a doing a practice and being a serious seeker practitioner, uh, there's a premise that I'm not it. And if I do these practices, then, um, then I could become it. And he said, that's, he says, look down at your genitals right now. He says, you could see if you're a man or a woman, you don't have to practice that. You are that no matter what you, you know, how you act or how you believe, how you believe yourself to be. You are either a man or a woman. So, um, he gave the example of you've probably heard before of, you know, it's like kind of like being in San Francisco, you're, and you want to get to San Francisco, so you take a plane to Chicago and then New York, back to <laughs> Chicago, back to San Francisco again. He says, this is the whole, um, and in a way, what we look at is that, uh, it is this seeking, it is this practicing, um, the, the practice is the very seat of this, uh, uh, of this journey from New York back to San Francisco when you're already in San Francisco. So would you would you brush off, or would he have brushed off, 
all the traditions of Zen and all the Hindu practices and all the shamanic practices and the indigenous cultures and their practices. I mean, would he all say that was a big crock, a waste of time? Well, or, or what? Because, you know, people who are Hindus, mm-hmm. who grew up with the Brahmins, you know, started from childhood with this stuff. Um, I've seen him in interaction, in interaction with them. And uh, he would actually... Um, confront them directly they'd say they they were asking the same question you the great you know the teachings that say it's important to meditate important to study important to get a teacher all of those things are you saying that those have no value and you know his answer oftentimes was the same you'd say no you're you're taking it way too far i'm really not saying that at all Hmm. it was important to the place to bring you into satsang. Yeah. But he said, once you're here now, it's like those things are actually the practitioner itself is what's going to get in the way. I think that's an important distinction because a lot of times Papaji's words are taken perhaps out of context and used as a sort of an alibi for, you know, just not doing anything. (laughs) And uh, he was speaking to a room full of people who were in his presence and for whom practices at that point might have been superfluous and even, um, you know, an obstacle. And, uh, you know, he was addressing them, but, you know, there is the old Zen saying that, you know, practice, enlightenment may be an accident, but spiritual practice makes you accident prone. So, you know, so everything has to be put in the proper context. Yeah, he, um, people like my, there were many people like myself. Practice junkies. They were the majority of more actually Osho devotees. Uh-huh. Um, after uh, Osho passed, there, there was a lot of people coming to see Papaji, mm-hmm. and um, and had had the same kind of history that went all the way back into the 60s, you know, with their spiritual practice. I was wondering if we could uh, steer the um, conversation a little bit to uh, the work of Radical Awakening. Absolutely. We have all the time in the world, so, you know, but, uh, and this has been interesting, but we can steer it right now, if you'd like, into Radical Awakening. Or if you'd like to take it somewhere else, because I don't know how much more you wanted to know about uh, me. I have stories I could tell about me. Yeah. I'd say that I'll go by your lead, you know, whatever you feel is you'd like to say I'm good with that we don't have we could spend the whole two hours talking about all the stuff you did back in the <laughs> 70s and 80s and that 90s might. yeah it'd be kind of a waste of time so uh, let's go right into Radical Awakening we'll see where it takes us um, let's start with my name Ramana because okay. uh, oftentimes people will say uh, well you know you're kind of taking on a, a big name there right yeah. how did you how did you come up with that right um the story behind my name is that uh, I used to uh, work with Eli Jackson there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Whom I'm interviewing a, next week, by the way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we kind of go back a long ways, yeah. you know. Uh, actually, it was Eli that introduced me to Andrew Cohen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this is before any of us went to India. We used to, uh, uh, I used to assist him in his, um, in his, um, uh, Trainings at Esalen Institute, which were on NLP and hypnosis, and uh, and there's uh, an enneagram piece that we did, and 
they were month long training, so I was there with them. Um, she and uh, he and um, at the time was Tony, mm-hmm. right, which is now Gangaji. Uh, he first introduced me to Andrew Cohen, um, who you know I credit just like he gives credit to Andrew pointing uh, pointing me to Papaji, right. So, uh, my name, by the way, is Carrie Hasegawa, all right? And my middle name is Yukio. So, with, uh, with Eli, I went through a, uh, in one of his, uh, hypnosis kind of regression works, I, I picked up, uh, my Japanese roots and took on the name Yukio, mm-hmm. right? So, um, I was kind of happy with that, and, um, People would sometimes call me Kerry Yukio. And uh, so when I went to Papaji, I was not really interested, and in, everyone was getting a new name, right? And uh, Papaji would always ride me about my name. Um, he would ride me about everything, by the way. One of the, one of the, uh, one of the people said that uh, in the community, they said, because uh, that's kind of a Johnny come later, you know, in the, in the community, most people kind of, been there earlier than me, like, you know, 92, 91, 1990, like Eli did, and um, he, he, one time he called me by my name, Yukio, and, uh, and he said, what does Yukio mean? And I said, uh, well, it's actually a Japanese character uh, for snow, and he said, snot? <laughs> <laughs> Your parents named you Snot. That's great. When I was uh, I was teaching in a free school for a while, and the kids used to make fun of me and used to call me Karaoke. Right? <laughs> and one time, Papa G called me Karaoke. I was thinking, Oh my God, how did he even know? There's <laughs> a lot of phenomena happening around him, just like around Arnachula. He definitely was a carrier of the transmission. So. Uh, so at one point, uh, there was a woman who lived with him, um, Chandi Devi, uh, who was kind of the messenger back and forth to Papaji, and I, I, I said, can you ask Papaji, you know, I'd roam a little note and get this, why are you giving me a, you know, uh, a hard time about not only everything, but my name? And she told me, haven't you gotten it? Everybody else knows Papaji wants to give you a new name. So, I said, if it's his desire, then I will do that. And there was a procedure for doing that of going to Satsang and saying, Papaji, I'd like to give you, like to get a new name from you. And then he says, come back tomorrow and come see me in front of the group and I'll give you a new name. So I thought, fine, I'll go ahead and I surrender, right? Okay. What is the significance, by the way, of getting a new name? What, or you can weave that into the story. You don't have to answer it immediately. But, you know, why should, why do all these people end up with Hindu names? In, um, there's a principle uh, in Hinduism called uh, invocation mm-hmm. that if you call, and going back to even Sanskrit itself, um, there are sacred vowels and, sim- uh, and syllables that if you put them together in a particular way, that they actually have the power to, um, to shift and change and influence the actual physical environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, called mantra. It's called right. a mantra. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Every one of these um, names that are given um, have a certain kind of power to them, in a way. Um, 
that because they're using the sacred symbols, and, excuse me, the sacred uh, syllables and vowels, that you put them together in such a way you don't even have to understand what it is. It's going. You could do a mantra and not even understand what the translation. It is still going to have that effect. So, um, and to have a god name, because oftentimes there are these names are gods or are, are figures in um, in the classic um, um, the classic stories. Right, figures in their names, and so that when you hear that name, it calls that energy. And what more do you hear than your own name? So it's kind of a gift to be uh, to be bringing that energy, to be invoking, have that energy invoked around you all of the time. That's the principle of changing the names, as far as I understand. Um, in India, they are given those names anyway, right? So. Right. Uh, we're given Christian names. Maybe the same kind of principle applies. I don't really know. But I know clearly that in Hinduism, that because of the sounds that are put together um, and the energy that is surrounding that in kind of the um, archetypal, you know, the energy that constellating in a particular way, that, uh, that it is having that effect. So um, when I went to get my name, I actually looked over, and um, and I saw on a small piece of paper that he had written the name Ra, which is Lord Rama. Mm-hmm. Right. So I thought, okay, now I'm going to get the name Ram, all right, or uh, or Rama, and because uh, in India sometimes you do leave off the you leave off the A, right, uh, in many many words. So. Um, so I recited this poem um, of Nuganar, who was one of Ramana Maharshi's uh, closest devotees. Uh, it was a poem that he wrote that he, when he first saw Ramana Maharshi, his heart opened up. And it was, it was a beautiful poem, and I would memorized a section of that poem. And, and I read it to him, and there was a, like a small tear that came mm. to his eye. Uh, his eyes got a little teary, I should say. And uh, then he said, uh, your name is Ramana. Uh, now, I was kind of shocked by that, and I, like most people in um, in the West, they kind of mispronounce um, Hindu names wrong. They oftentimes, because it, it sounds more natural, I guess, is the way that our our uh, vocabulary is set up. That usually, almost always, there are exceptions, but almost always, the emphasis on on these uh, Hindu words are on the first syllable. But we give it second syllable instead. So, you know, so many people still call me Ramana, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so many words I can go through like that that are mispronounced wrong. And uh, so I, up to that point, I was saying um, Ramana, right? So he says, your name is Ramana. And I said, Ramana? Like that. <laughs> Like, is it, you mean that guy, or do you mean, am I mispronouncing something? So he pointed up to the big picture behind him, and he says, yes, maybe you've heard of this man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I remember there was a group of my friends that, uh, because as far as I know, he hadn't given anybody else the name Ramana. And uh, so the room was kind of quiet at that time. And... uh, I don't know if they arranged this ahead of time, but after lunch, when I came out of Satsangavan, because we had lunch on the on the rooftop when we came down, um, there were uh, about four or five of my friends that uh, that when I walked out of Satsangavan, 
Then he started bowing to him. Beautiful. You know, it's interesting that you bring in a, a, a devotional theme here in the conversation. Um, I don't mean to sidetrack you, but we'll get back to Radical Awakening in a minute. Because there's a, there was a beautiful point toward the end of this interview that you sent me. He said, people think of Papaji as a strict non-dual teacher, but Papaji was one of the greatest forces of devotional love that ever walked this earth. His love had literally consumed him. It leaked out of every pore, every gesture. And if yeah. he ever actually talked of the matter, well, he couldn't. It just overwhelmed him and he would be reduced to choking. He hid his devotion, actually. Yeah. Papaji, Papaji's non-dual teaching is just the beginning. People think that when he talks of awakening, that is the end of things. But if you read carefully his words, he makes clear that awakening is only the beginning. When one awakes, the real affair of love begins, and it goes on forever. It is as if one is finally qualified for the depth of love. I totally love that little passage, and uh, I bring up that theme a lot in interviews, so I'm glad you mentioned it. And um, Continue yeah. with the story, but if you feel like um, you know, reflecting on that as you go along, please do. Beautiful. Um, yeah, that's going to be included in my upcoming book, by the way. Good. Um, so the... Uh, when I, I I heard that story and it's like okay I want in on this guy right mm -hmm. um, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar you wanted in on right yeah. so yeah. I put down you know I put my name Yukio Ramana in the book mm -hmm. and um, and when I saw him um, he had the book in his hand and his eyes were really bad and you know he had glasses on and he's like looking at the book and he's going 
what? What is this name? Karaoke? (laughs) There you go again. Starting again. (laughs) I actually had developed the Radical Awakening work um, between um, 1996 and 1997, and uh, I was very anxious to kind of bring him, you know, what I had to get his feedback on it because in Boulder at the time what was happening it was, it was kind of really taking off, right? I had, had been giving um, private sessions and doing workshops and the workshops were filled up like three months in advance. Mm. Um, so I wanted to run by him and that was, well now I have a chance to do that um, with Yogi Ram Kumar. I had actually a whole list of questions. So when 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 he asked me, who's this karaoke? And I said, actually, it's uh, uh, it's actually Yukio Ramana. And uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, Yukio Ramana, because I had put down Kari Yukio. And he said, but you know, I, I don't feel like I could own this name Ramana, so I just go haven't been using it. And um, he dropped the book on the floor, and he goes like nose to nose. And he's a beady smoker, all right? So I'm getting, those are Indian cigarettes, if you don't know right. And he's breathing his beady breath on me, nose to nose with me, like going like this. And I didn't feel like I should pull back. And so I just kind of stayed with him like that. And he was silent until it finally said, in very close measured words, he said, you use the name your teacher gave you. Mm. Nice. Back like and it kind of shocked me, you know. I thought, "Oh, is this? This seems like this wasn't on the agenda, right?" And then he goes, he goes back. He sees an arm going back like this, and he grabs an orange, and he gives it to me. And his attendant, you know, tells me the interview's over. Hmm. But these questioning the interviews over, right? It actually, um, it was almost like a, the, what happened after that is. Uh, we could talk about the, uh, the goo- killing the goose that laid the golden egg. At that point, uh, there was a woman um, who was part of Inner Directions. She was on the board of directors of Inner Directions. They were kind of handling and preserving a lot of Ramana's teaching, and who was who was um, kind of um, introducing me to all of her um, important people in Beverly Hills. Um, and I came back and I said. Uh, I'm using the name Ramana, and she said, you can't do that. That's just wrong, right? And uh, I said, I have a very clear directive. I need to use this name. And uh, and she dropped me. You know? She says, well, I can't support you for doing that. Um, but it's been Ramana since. Uh, and I feel like uh, it's been both a blessing and a curse. It was a... Uh, there was a, uh, a private meeting that I had with Papaji when he, uh, after he gave me the name, um, where uh, he was encouraging me to uh, continue what I was doing in Lucknow. Now, what I did in Lucknow was I was uh, asked, because I've been a long, long time student. Up to, in 97, I had already been a, a student of the Enneagram for about 15 years. Um, studying um, with some of the core group of people that came out of the origin of the, the Western teaching of uh, the Enneagram of Personality. And uh, there was a woman that asked me to do a workshop on the Enneagram when I was there in, uh, in 95. So um, Papaji 
Um, as, as kind of the tradition, you ask the teacher if it's okay. Your teacher, if it's okay, he says, oh, yes, yes. He says, and I want you to do it in satsang Vibhang. I want you to sit on my satsang seat, and I want you to do the workshop there, right? And it was like, Papa, I'm sorry, I really can't do that. Um, was he certainly- pl- what do you think he was doing, messing with you? Like, uh, well, go ahead, you continue. Yeah, later on, he said... In the Enneagram workshop, he says, make sure you talk about the handkerchief. Make the handkerchief a, a very important piece in that. Um, well, I knew what he was talking about, because he talked about, he sometimes would use the handkerchief as, a, as an analogy for not looking at the form of, uh, of the handkerchief, but what it's made out of, which mm-hmm. is cotton. And then if you start looking at cotton, you start noticing cotton everywhere, the basic substance, um, which is consciousness. Um, so I started the Enneagram workshop talking about, like he requested, the handkerchief. And it turned into a satsang, right? And uh, then there was a follow-up one, and he started telling all of these people um, you need to go to Ramana's, you know, workshop, you know. He actually pointed to people and said, you go, you go, you go. And um, what he was really up to was, I realized, like, in retrospect now, that uh, somebody asked me, it was actually Shadi Devi that asked me a number of years ago uh, in Tirvanamalai, where she lives, um, she said, did Papaji actually ask you to go out and be a teacher? And I said, it was very clear that he told me that he's not sending me out a teach- as a teacher. He sent no teachers out. Um, that, uh, that you're a messenger. And I want to speak to that just very briefly, but uh, to complete this. Um, he never asked me, he never said, you go to satsang. What he did was he kind of... Um, took a boot and uh, took his boot and pushed me out the door. He got this whole thing started with me being in front of a group doing satsangs. And uh, what he actually said was, I want you to continue what you did here, back in the West. So technically he never said, now you go out and teach and be a satsang teacher. It was, he worked in very, very subtle and, uh, and, uh, and not direct ways. And many people would say that he was like a trickster, mm-hmm. right? So do you think there's any misrepresentation taking place among people who represent themselves as you know, lineage holders for the Papaji's lineage? I mean, I mean, is there some kind of subtle um, emphasis on them as teachers sent by Papaji or representing Papaji that you feel is, is uh, inappropriate? You know, this whole thing about a, uh, a lineage is something that really doesn't exist that, uh, with Papaji. I mean, he was very clear about it. He used these very words. There is no lineage. Mm-hmm. There's no mantle that I'm passing on because, you know, traditionally that's oftentimes how it happens. Somebody dies and that's passed on. He, he was very clear that there is no mantle being passed on and there is no, um, that there is no lineage. Okay. Well, I guess that's... Couldn't your... be clearer on that. Yeah. He couldn't be anyway. 
it's a subtle distinction, but um, I, I guess I think I see what you're saying is that you know those, those who try to convey the impression that there is a lineage and that they are a representative of it have perhaps not quite grasped the spirit of Papaji's teaching, in some respect anyway. I don't know. Um, I just know my own experience. Um, in terms of being a messenger, uh, at first I thought it was the message of his teaching. Mm-hmm. But really, um, if there really is no teaching, you know, it couldn't be that either. And at one point I realized that messenger for me, and it may be different for everybody, I think it is, but messenger for me was, uh, was like mercury. He delivered people from one place to another, right? Mm. And I feel like my function, really, as a messenger, is to bring people to um, to my um, teacher's teacher's teacher, which is Aranajpa. Interesting. Which is the silent transmission, which is consciousness itself, but also represented as this uh, as this mountain, which Ramana Maharshi called the source of the silent transmission. So you feel like that's your ultimate function? It, it seems that way. And so the, the true, f- the, the complete fruition of your efforts that only comes in the form of 21 people who end up going to that mountain once a year. <laughs> right, something like that. But in a larger context, Arnachal is everywhere. You know? mm-hmm. And certainly people who have never gone to Arnachal are waking up. I mean, it's not a... It's not a, it's not a you know, necess- necessity that you go there. Right. Um, it's a, uh, in India, and in what Ramana Maharshi said himself is, it is though the last place. You know, um, I had a, I had a friend that, uh, who had, uh, been, um, traveling in India for 18 years, living there full time right now. And he says, he said, Ramana, it just kind of blows my mind that he says it took me 18 years of traveling all over India. And he found it by mistake, by the way. There was actually a, uh, a goddess temple that he was, um, that he was a goddess devotee. And he, he, Tirvanamalai was the place, it didn't have any accommodations for Westerners. So Tirvanamalai was a place that, uh, that actually could house him, you know, because there's houses Westerners that he could make travel to the temple. And then he saw an and was all over. And he says, it just blows my mind. He says that, you know, I understand that, um, and as it said in the Aranachal Puranas, that Aranachal is like the last place. So he said, here I spent 18 years traveling all over the world, and you are bringing first-timers here right to the last place. Hmm. Although I've heard it's a bit of a scene there in Tiruvan Malai. There's just everybody flocking there, and there's all these wannabes and people setting up you know, satsangs, and and I oh, guess you, yeah. you you have to sort of separate separate the wheat from the chaff a bit if you go there. I know I I never do a public satsang in um in Tirvanamalai. Hmm. I work with the groups that I that I have with behind the walls of the ashram that we stay in. I see. I just feel like there's too much out there that I'd rather just not get involved. Yeah. So is it okay if we talk about radical awakening? Yeah, keep going. It's, all, it's always okay. We keep you know, going off on diversions, but um, feel, just plunge right ahead. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. 
There was one point where, um, when I was in, this was in um, 95, that uh, Papa G, 1995, that Papa G asked me, um, he says, there are people that are having problems with self-inquiry. So um, I was wondering if you could help those people. You know? This whole uh, approach of asking who am I over and over again. Um, so I said, sure, I'll, I could do that. At one point, what I looked at in terms of uh, self-inquiry is uh, that there was a... I looked at it as kind of a top-down method. In other words, you start with your mind and you use the mind to inquire into who you really are and continue to deepen that until um, until some sense of the true self is actually found through this investigation of the deeper and deeper layers of, uh, of who am I. Um, and I think partly he asked me because it that top-down method never really worked for me. And... Uh, Then I read something in, um, in Ramana Maharshi's work where it was a description of self-inquiry, this sort of uh, different approach that I, uh, that I read and other things that he, that he wrote about. If we go back a little bit, first of all, to the origin of, um, of the method of self-inquiry by, uh, as presented by Ramana Maharshi, um, this Who Am I? He actually said that... Uh, it came out of a, uh, a request of his uh, devotees of how is it that we can like find the true self. And uh, one of the things he talked about was how this method, excuse me, one of the things he talked about was this method of self-inquiry that he's imparting um, is for people who have not received the silent transmission of our Mm-hmm. So it was like a second stage teaching or something. A oh, good way of putting it, yeah. yeah. So my interest at that point was um, what if it was we started with the silent transmission? What if people had a glimpse or this direct experience of, um, of who I really am? And starting from there moving up and finding out then who is the personality in the context of that what is the mind in relationship to that what is the body in relationship to that what is this world in relationship to that so uh, that was the approach I started working with uh, of course the big question is well how does one get into that space how do you go from the how do you start at the bottom well Papaji had a reputation at that time, of, uh, and people came from all over India. Um, because of this reputation, he was the one that was waking people up. That was his reputation. Now, on, uh, in the background that I was coming from, and this is really with my um, in my work with uh, helping to assist uh, um, uh, Eli Jackson Bear, uh, one of the with NLP. Right? It was a uh, NLP for people who don't know what that is. It's a um, it's really a study of state, 
and it states an experience. Neurolinguistic programming, it stands for, right? Exactly. Is that the thing that involves tapping? No, that's something different. Okay, sorry. Linguistics. It's all about linguistics. How is it that you can use words to, uh, to influence a state? Uh, uh, it was really based on a study of Virginia Satir and, um, and Milton Erickson, um, who are considered to be masters of moving people into different states. And uh, so what I looked at was, uh, so the principle of NLP, and this is what, you know, was my, at that time, what I was teaching, and was, you know, my life was part of this investigation of how is it that, uh, that an experience is broken down into small enough pieces that uh, the principle of it is if you can break it down into small enough pieces, they call it chunks, and lead a person one piece at a time into it that a person can actually experience what you're experiencing. You take your own experience, break it down in people, pieces and chunks, and lead a person directly into that. In fact, um, Richard Bandler, one of his... Uh, first experiments in uh, NLP was at the time, I don't know about now, but you know at the time Richard Bandler was a pot smoker. So his first experiment was taking somebody who had never smoked marijuana before and, uh, and give them the experience of totally being stoned. <laughs> and uh, he led them through the process. The woman was like stoned. Later on, um, she smoked a joint because this is the same thing. Okay, so that was the first you know, successful experiment. So, uh, so taking that approach, I looked at what it is that is, uh, you know, what, what accompanied this um, primary shift of, uh, of identification of who I was uh, really came out of, it was a perceptual sense that it shifted in me that uh, I was actually looking out with different, it wasn't metaphorical, literally how I sensed my body, how I sensed the environment um, had taken a perceptual shift. I was seeing, hearing, and sensing myself differently. So I took it upon myself then to, to study that and to find out could I lead somebody to the perceptual sense of how I'm perceiving myself in the world. Uh, and theoretically then, um, if I did that, then that should then be accompanied by a primary shift in identification. That was my working premise that I started working with in 1995. And I remember uh, just uh, being in my room in Lucknow, uh, where Papaji was, and I just had a pad of paper. I wrote, this word came to me, radical awakening. I thought, that's got a ring to it. Um, as far as I know, and I've kind of looked at it, and you know, going in the past, no, the, the word, those two words, never really. It's kind of like this: people doing radical awakening right now. There's books that are. There's one book that you know, there's a couple of books about radical awakening. I do radical awakening work. Um, I, I'm clear that those people must have run into my website that I started in 1998, which you know came out with, which is a radical awakening. Um, if you Google Radical Awakening, if I was going to figure out what do I call my work, what's it, I'd kind of Google it. Is anybody else doing it? Well, I was always the number one spot, you know, and sometimes I took up 
there wasn't anybody using it. So that was the first five pages. You know? <laughs> right. So sort of like Buddha at the gas pump. Nobody else has tried to use that yet. <laughs> I'm all over the place. <laughs> Actually, people were like saying at the time, no, that's terrible. You know, radical. People were thinking like, you know, your political radical, it's not ever going to work. It'll never catch on. Yeah, it means but root. It, exactly. And actually, yeah. not only root, but the radix, is a, the root word radix, actually means coming through source. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was perfect. Um, but it did take, you know, a decade or a couple of decades before it really started catching on and people actually started using it. I think there's one person about in 2000, 2001 came out with a book about his own awakening. He called Radical Awakening. I just noticed a person that you interviewed a number of weeks ago, Jivan or something. Amoda, yeah, she's writing a book and that's her working title. I, I thought of that. Oh my God, it's the working title of her new book? Apparently, yeah. Oh, wow, it's going to be a race to see who's going to come out first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's not attached to that title, but she mentioned that, that it might be in the title, yeah. Yeah, and there was another person who has that in his title that came out with the book last year. Mm. Um, anyway, what is it <laughs> in terms of the way you present it? Um, so I took these people who said that they had, as Papaji's request, uh, uh, who were having a hard time with doing what I'm calling the top-down method. And um, a lot of the work in the beginning was just finding out. Um, I remember when we, when I later I used to do uh, um, uh, trainers training programs in, um, in uh, NLP, and the, uh, their graduation to be able to, to, to graduate to, from the course I was doing was to put together a designer program that you pick a state and you bring a person into it. Well, I was kind of in my own grad, you know, I was working on my own graduation of that. I, it was this state that, uh, that I was, the components of how I was perceiving the state. Could I bring a person in step at a time into that? And um, there was a point where, uh, where I was successful most of the time. So that was kind of the launch of the Radical Awakening work, which was um, kind of piece by piece, perceptually shifting what, uh, how they're perceiving through the senses until the picture was big enough so that uh, their perception was large enough that it was a context that we could actually do an exploration of who are you, what is this personality, what is this world, what is this body. And this is one-on-one -on -one work, is it? Uh, I, I was doing at the time, um, back in 96, what I was doing was I was doing it um, in works in private, but also uh, I found out that uh, it was actually quite easy to teach people. I took a weekend workshop that I call a Radical Awakening Workshop, and I took them through um, how to t take another person to the seven steps of Radical Awakening. And uh, there's, it's uh, just to kind of tag on to the end of that, the, the whole of my work is called um, Radical Awakening um, in the opening to the, uh, or the deepening to the uh, uh, heart of consciousness. One of the things that I found early on was, and was that what I was really doing was giving people um, a glimpse of what reality was. And the glimpse is powerful enough that it kind of reshaped their 
their, their approach of who they are in their life. But it was not something, I would say, that was stable, right? It just came and went. So when I started studying um, Ramana's teachings of, uh, where he says everything, everything arises out of the heart, or what he calls sometimes the cave of the heart, all things arise out of the cave of the heart. Um, I really didn't know what that meant when I first read it. And then what you read from um, that piece that I wrote, that really opened it up. It's like we could say that devotion is all heart. It's all about love. So what I found was that when a person had a radical awakening, they were not enlightened. Um, there was not like this stable place of, you know, classically. They wouldn't be one of the five people that Papaji counted on his hands, right? But something did happen, though, that when the mind was silent for a long enough time, that the natural state of, uh, of heart naturally arises because it's, it's no longer... Um, the interference of the mind is cleared up enough so that that feeling of what what I um, uh, considered to be like essential. This is like I was a student of uh, Hamid Ali for a while, uh, who did some diamond heart work, and he has this beautiful piece called "Essential Aspects of Being," where he said that uh, that in being or in the natural state that there are. Uh, a natural expression that comes out of that, which is love, which is compassion, which is goodness, which is generosity, which is purity, and it kind of goes on and on. And it's like these are the uh, essential aspects of who we are that begin to just rise up um, because they're no longer being uh, masked over by uh, by mind. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, There's the foundation for them to blossom. Exactly. Very good. Right. And, and another way of putting it is that you know, if you don't know who you are, how are you going to appreciate anything else? Once you know who you are, then then there can be begin to dawn an appreciation of what other things are. There's a sort of a, the the depth of of appreciation can begin to uh, unfold. Right. Exactly. So um, that was kind of the finishing piece for me, and it really came out of. Um, of just having not only like a quieting going on, but a um, but a real kind of shaking up and disassembly of everything that I um, that I held dear to me in a way. Hmm. Uh, it really came. It's interesting. This is another uh, Papaji interview uh, and um, interaction. One of the really important ones. When I um, I went to Papaji and I asked him. Um, this was 1994. I had been reading the galleys of uh, that David was writing about uh, this book we talked about. Nothing ever happened, and he talked about in the 60s Papaji having this. Um, there was a French priest that uh, mm. that uh, that he asked, uh, "You tell me that enlightenment or this awakening can happen in a moment, or not right now, not next week, not next year, uh, not some, you know." undefined time. So uh, he says, what do I need to do to uh, have that happen? And uh, and he had all these accoutrements of the of the mass. 
in a black bag. And he says, take that bag and throw it in the Ganga, meaning just throwing all your concepts out and you'll have what you want. Uh, well, as the story goes, the, this priest never did that. But after reading that, I went to him and I said, uh, and admittedly, I was like full of pride at the time, spiritual pride. At the time, I had an institute that was one of the top institutes in the country in transpersonal psychology. Um, I was looked up, looked up to. I was revered. I had creative work. You know, I had anything, any idea I wanted to develop. I had students that I could work with. It was just like I felt like I kind of had it together, right? Making six figures a year and on a 5,000 square foot home in Colorado Rockies. It just felt like I was it, right? So uh, I said, Papa Jim, almost there. So. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you how, how much hubris there was, right? And uh, and I said, what's the black bag that I need to throw into the gongo? What's my black bag? So I said, okay, well, we'll do a little inventory. He said, uh, it all is about attachment, right? And I said, okay. And he says, let's find out what you're attached to. So he said, are you attached to money? Well, to me, kind of money was easy, you know? So I figured, no. Nah not money. Uh, what about work? Well, the work was totally creative. I, I, no, I'm not attached to work. I have no desires around work. Everything's just fine. And uh, uh, then he says, what about a uh, woman? Uh, and I had just gotten out of a, a nine-year relationship, and I was just feeling freezeberg, right? I have no attachment to that. Um, and then he said, what about uh, freedom? And I remember Ramdas, you know, reading him in 1970, where he called the the last desire, which is a good desire, the desire with the golden chain. I wanted to give him the right answer, right? So I said, "Yes, I'm attached to freedom." So he said, "That's your black bag to throw in." Uh, and in fact, you were probably attached to all those other things too, but you had plenty of them, and so it didn't seem like you were attached to them. It was only, yeah, when, they, was, only when they were taken away that you would have yeah. noticed the attachment. This is in my book where I talk about you you, uh, you don't find out whether you're really attached to something until what you have is taken away, which as the story goes on, that is actually what happened. Mm. So, um, so the next morning I woke up, and the benchmark of every, what I thought enlightenment was, was happening. I mean, it was an elevated conscious state that was unbroken, not even for one moment, even I was conscious, even through my sleep and deep sleep state, it was, like, it was this, uh, this, this is the benchmark, I felt like I did it, you know, I didn't even know how I threw the black bag away, but I must have done it, right, so um, I was just sailing, and that went on for about a week, ten days or so, unbroken, um, I decided my love for Papaji was so strong I just camped out on his on his um um on his driveway. I just took a blanket and I was there twenty four seven. And every once in a while he would ask me to come in to have a meal with him, but I was just hanging there, right? And I was happy living in in the driveway, right? <laughs> I would pick up books like the Rebu Gita and it would feel like my soul was flying just reading. The day before it um it came time for me to leave. Um, the whole thing fell away, as if it never happened. I picked up the Rebu Gita. It was like it felt heady to me. You know, all of a sudden it was just like, what is going on here? You know. So I wrote this bad letter to Papaji, and I said, I'm leaving tomorrow. 
So you have to, you know, I had it in my lawsuit, so you have to kind of give it back to me, right? I gave it to Shanti Devi. She took it to Papaji. Um, in about an hour, the message came back to me, written on the back of my letter, which is about three pages going on and on. And uh, he wrote down on it, he said, bad luck. <laughs> he said, probably not this, not this lifetime or any lifetime soon. Um Maybe a cockroach in the <laughs> Maybe a cockroach in the next lifetime. I was just devastated. He really liked to mess with people, didn't he? <laughs> he was something. So um, I was actually crying when I went to uh, my friend Premnot, who I have so much respect for. He was a person who was with Papa G, you know, from, from the early days, and uh, we became friends. And I showed him the letter, and he said uh, he looked it over and he said. Uh, I want you to come back at, uh, just before dinner tomorrow here to this room. I want to talk to you. So I said, fine. And tears, fine. And uh, when I came back to the room, there was a group of people. There was kind of some old-time devotees. And I kind of was surprised they were all there. And they said, we feel like we really need to talk to you about what's going on and what this letter's about. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm, what is it? Said, uh, this is an invitation for Papaji for you not to leave. What was one of the things he first told you when you first got here? And I said, oh, something about not leaving. He said, the words were, do not leave here until you're well cooked. He's, and you're just leaving. In the middle of you feel like you lost, you know, all your awakening. And what did he tell you? He said, throw away your attachment to freedom. And here is four pages of a letter crying about losing it. He says, haven't you learned that Papaji is very impatient with people that do not listen to him? At the time, um, Papaji used to call me coconut head, right? <laughs> that means like, you know, in a puja, like they, they, they put coconut, uh, they use coconut on, on, the, on the lingam, they bang it really hard mm. to open it up, right? Shri Palam. <laughs> so he said, you are a coconut head, you know, <laughs> and have to stay here. This, And then another friend said... Uh, you know, we took notice of you as soon as you were here because it said, like, Papaji, he says that Papaji used to mess with everyone a lot. He said, but he hasn't done it a lot. And he said that, he said, we've been noticing you because he says, he said that Papaji has been working you over in a way that he hasn't working, worked anyone over in a long time. And I was just thinking, well, lucky me. Uh, I, was, I was just through. You know, I was so angry about the whole thing. I didn't hear anything they said. So I said, screw this, screw luck. Now, screw you guys. This is like, you know, I felt like, uh, it was very juvenile. Thing. I felt like somebody just gave me the ice cream that I always wanted my whole life. And what he did was he took it from me and threw it on the ground, right? So I left, lucked out in a huff. When I came back, there's a long story. I don't have to tell it, but just basically bottom line is I lost everything. Even my own self-respect, everything, fell down around me. And I was brought down to my knees. And this is where I really found out that I was very attached to all of the things that I told us that I wasn't attached to. And uh, there was a dream that I had one time where uh, there was this giant Nataraja, which is this dancing Shiva, right? Uh, and... Uh, this big bronze figure that was 50 feet high and I was in a room 
and it was coming after me. And I was looking for a place to get away, and there were no doors and windows. And it was dancing to a drum, this dancing, coming out and dancing. And I looked over in the corner, and Papaji was playing the drum. Hmm. So um, I called my friend, really upset about everything. Just I had just my life was like in pieces at that point. I didn't know where to do. I didn't have any money. I just long story. Just didn't have anything. And um, kind of a, a true fall from whatever. And um, my friend, who's a longtime practitioner um, of um, Adida, said, "Aren't aren't you getting the message here? It's like." That dream was you need to get back to your teacher. And as soon as he said that, the light went back on. So I um, went back to um, uh, to Lucknow, kind of on my knees. Right, very different than the first time that I went. In fact, you had to borrow money to get back this time, even though you had been like six-figure salary guy before. I was giving futures on my on my transpersonal sessions. Yeah. So when I got back, um, that was when I really found out what Papaji meant when he said uh, that uh, it's not an experience. Awakening is not an experience. It's in the deep realms of what you know to be true that is as a reference point that you always return to. And then you know, kind of going back full circle to my story about how it is that I felt like it was that returning point that um, that made it so clear that the dream disappeared and I got to see reality and continuing and, and the deepening into the full self-realization is continuing to have that um, that uh, that dream being revealed over and over again and in the space of that this um, this heart of consciousness opening up and it wasn't until that happened that I that I realized that it was nothing to do with me at all, that there was a, a bigger picture that was going on that I was only a very small member of, <laughs> minuscule, that is orchestrated in something much larger. Well, that last little thought, um, are you talking about uh, your awakening uh, there, or are you talking about the whole dance of what happened to you, India, back to the States, back to India? What do you mean by... You know, you're part of a small character in something much larger. Oh, it really goes back to what I was talking about before about the thing flipping around. Mm-hmm. That is what happened to me because one thing that became very clear to me is what I thought it was, right? Clearly was not it. I see. And that was so big for me, too, because I felt like that was the spiritual seeker's experience that I was looking for and practicing for for my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, you know, I had it and I lost it. And it became very clear that uh, if you had it and lost it, that's not it. So then it's a question of, well, what is it then Mm -hmm. if it isn't that? And that that, that was the beginning of my investigation of it's beyond the realm of experience. So it's beyond the realm of experience, um, and yet somehow it involves experience, and it also involves knowledge. Right. And so how would you compare your your day-to-day, your moment-to-moment ex- experience, if I may use that word, now with that you know lovely thing that happened in Lucknow before you left that you know lasted for 10 days? Um, 
if you had to compare them side by side, what how does it stack up? I always feel like now when one has an experience like that, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a good hair day. Mm. It's something that uh, maybe does not even come out of uh, that it, out of what you're doing, but uh, but grace descending in the moment. I always, you know, when when those experiences happen, um, they are no longer like the benchmark of here I am, now I'm here, and then when I'm not experiencing that, that means that I must be doing something wrong, and maybe I need to like get with something. I just look at it as that's a moment of grace that happens um, where everything becomes very clear. Uh, Ramana Maharshi himself said that uh, that sense of self, the, the true sense of the self, comes in waves. It has a rhythm of its own where it gets strong, like you know, receding and then drawing in. Um, there are some early pictures of him. This is one of the things I found out in my research of Ramana Maharshi that. Uh, he said one time that the um, that the stick he oftentimes is an old man he's carrying is, is a walking stick. He said that as a young man sometimes he would have that stick because there was this um, influx of this um, strong sense of self running through, where he would actually lose his balance and the stick helped him um, helped him keep his balance. Same now, thing would happen to Amma. She would you know she would be go into the bathroom and fall into the backwaters because she'd go into samadhi or she'd be walking along carrying something and just fall to the ground into a trance, you know? Yeah. So I got to see that those experiences are something that is just part of the unfolding that has a life of its own, mm-hmm. that, it get, that it moves forward into the foreground of experience. Um, and yet... The, uh, the real deepening of the work is to um, find out that when it moves into the backdrop of experience and your, um, you know, your mind is in the fore- forefront, that uh, one way of saying it is that when I, my, my feeling about, or my um, picture before I met Papaji and before, uh, before I had this shift with him, that uh, my experience always was uh, enlightenment meant you're kind of above it all. You're not influenced by any of those kind of things around you because you're always in this high state that is undisturbed, right? Um, but when I read about Ramana Harsh's life, you found out that there are many experiences. It's a very revealing book that uh, Anomaly Swami um, wrote. And uh, it actually got nixed by the ashram. So he actually had a, you know, there was a, redo of his book that kind of met more of how the ashram wanted to present Ramana. But I, uh, Dave Georgie, you know, who does the, um, who's in, who's, who does the photography for, uh, for, uh, for the ashram, I knew him from, he's a friend from, um, from Lucknow. He gave me a copy of the original book before it was like done over. And it really presented, um, Ramana Maharshi as a man. And, uh, who had a full range of experience of, of emotions and feelings, um, and that he himself said that you would never really be able to tell a fully realized being because on the surface it looks like he's going through what everybody else is going through. Uh, the full range of emotions, not above it. But what I got was that if there is the sense of way in the background, when it's kind of like this is the best way of saying it 
that instead of feeling like enlightenment was this being above it all and not being touched by anything, it is kind of the opposite of that. It's like being fully engaged in what, you know, having the life stream of your identity of the dream playing fully out, but having this, maybe Ramana Maharshi was like one half of one percent that he was resting in, in the midst of, you know, 99% of just being in the personality. He was resting all the time and did not look away. As in his own report, he said, not looking away from that place, even for one second. That's interesting. Let's play with that for a bit. Um, I would, just to play devil's advocate, I would suggest that maybe somebody like Ramana Maharshi is 99% resting in that place, not 1%, but 99% resting in that place. On the surface level, we see him screaming in pain because of his yeah. cancer and, and you know getting mad at the cook or you know, whatever he went through in terms of personal experiences. Right. Yeah, but then it's kind of a taskmaster in a way in this book. You know? Yeah, but, but so in terms of his subjective experience, and I'm just yeah. speculating here, but the predominant thing would be that you know, resting in being or whatever you want to call it. And sure. others would see, or like, let's say Christ on the cross, you know, others are seeing him going through this horrible ex- ex- right. suffering. Like, why but, he God? Yeah, you know? but what was predominant for him? Was it actually the suffering of the body? Perhaps it was, you know, perhaps that was just the faint remains of of uh, human experience on the, on the rock-solid foundation of presence, which wasn't right. perturbed no matter how horrific the circumstances. Thank you for that. That is a very good clarification. You know, it is what is being appearing, what is appearing on the outside. Yeah, now for the average person, it's 99%, you know, the circumstances. Those are real. And, you know, maybe in the back there's this faint little glimmer of a spark of, of, you know, of being or presence or self-awareness. And so the whole game seems to be to shift the ratio. Yes, or to realize that... It's not really a matter of shifting the ratio. It is noticing um, what is what is present in terms of what Ramana Maharshi's experience was is your experience as yeah. well. Yeah. But that to which you give your attention grows stronger in your life, so that that spark of a presence can become more and more of a flame, you know, and conflagration, and eventually the predominant thing, regardless of the external circumstances. Yes? Yes, absolutely. You know, I was just realizing that we're kind of talking about uh, one of the pieces that I've been working with Mm -hmm. um, pretty deeply in the last three years was um, uh, a piece that... uh, that was presented by um, Mr. Kadala Maharaj. Of course, you know who he is. Um, he had a master, a Siddha master named Siddha Master Rameshwar uh, uh, Maharaj. And um, his, the, his writings came to the surface a number of years ago. And um, there was a piece of that that he was presenting called The Four Bodies of Consciousness. And to me, it really kind of put in perspective a lot of the things that I felt like were um, kind of, well, almost not acknowledged in a, in a, a pure Vedanta um, orientation, which is, uh, you know, the pure, there's nothing you could do in this world, um, like Ramesh's teaching. You know, he kind of took, uh, he kind of took Mr. Gadada's uh, teachings and kind of took it to another, 
to another, to an extreme, really, about uh, you might as well do absolutely nothing because it's all destiny, you know. So why even bother with, you know, thinking about things spiritual or anything, you know? mm-hmm. um, which isn't what I, my understanding and definitely not what uh, what uh, Mr. Godot's ma- master was saying. He said that things all are occurring in uh, four bodies or four levels of consciousness at the same time. Um, even though they seem totally contrary to, you know, what what's happening in the second body is totally contrary to what's happening in the fourth. You could say something would be totally not true that becomes totally true, and yet it all becomes true, right? So, I love that. To, to me, it just opened up so much. Yeah. Uh, because it it invites everything. It invites all the things that the uh, non-dualists, the pure Vedanta people, I should say. Because um, there is kind of this pure Vedanta teaching, right? Um, that all the things that they're poo-pooing, you know, is like embraced as um, if you're going to do something in second body consciousness. The second body consciousness, by the way, is the first body is the gross body. The second body is the gross body when it's um, introduced when consciousness is introduced into the gross body. And there's all these levels of refinement until it jumps into kind of over the line where the separate sense of self is, is, is um, it's not a concept, it's a, it's a living reality. That is happening in this moment. The fourth body of consciousness where there is this uh, element of, of love, right? an integration of this world, the, the feminine aspect, um, baby baba, Blowing breath, it's breath into the universe, and everything is shakti. That's kind of like the fourth body of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So, um, just the acknowledgement of all that's going on um, made it may, has been making it really easy for me to address, um, in good conscience, so to speak, um, where a person is is at, and when a person, just like Ramana Maharshi, I just realized this that uh, if somebody was really into yoga. He would say, keep doing your yoga, you know? It was a real acknowledgement that everything is happening at the same time, even while they're doing their yoga at the second body of consciousness. There is something opening up, and something is totally present in the third and fourth. That's great. Now, this really speaks to a theme that comes up again and again in these interviews, and you've said it very well. Um, just that you know, life is multidimensional, and and all dimensions have their relevance. And uh, enlightenment doesn't mean locking into one dimension to the exclusion of the others. It means you know, Brahman means totality. And there's a saying in the Vedas someplace that Brahman is the eater of everything. It, it completely it engulfs all the diversities and all the levels and all the strata. And and you know, a person who is really there, so to speak, can you know play about at all those levels uh, comfortably because he contains them you know he hasn't he hasn't sort of fixated on one level to the exclusion of the others right i i just love that i really do yeah that's great um and physics comes to the fore again too. I mean, you have all these laws of nature that pertain to different levels of creation, and they're they're paradoxically unlike one another as you move from level to level. But each has its relevance at its level. And the quantum physicist who understands a level of reality at which gravity hasn't even arisen can't go jumping off buildings by virtue of that mm-hmm. understanding. He has to respect that level as well. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you because you know we've been going on for quite a quite a while now um, just if there's something that uh, 
anything um, that comes to you that uh, about anything about what we've talked about that you wanted me to address specifically? Kind of? Well, I could throw the question back at you. I just want to make sure that you feel that we've done justice <laughs> to what, what is dear to your heart, you know, and what it is you like to say, because very often I feel like I've failed to ask the question which really brought out, would bring out the nugget that is you know, mm. precious, precious to the person. So I just want to make sure we haven't overlooked anything. Ramana Maharshi had this, uh, wrote this, uh, this piece which he considered to be, um, the most seminal of all his teachings. Um, uh, it came in 40 verses. It's called 40 Verses on Truth. And, uh, the invocation to that, uh, to those 40 verses, he talks about the heart. And he said, the heart is always in meditation. It's meditating on itself every moment. I feel like everything that we've talked about in the interview up to this point has been interesting conversation, and um, and hopefully, you know, people can find some value out of some of the things we talked about. At least, I hope we at least entertain people for some way. <laughs> But I don't want to miss something that is um, that is really something that uh, of what in the background was happening during this whole interview. To me, what's made this interview precious is the heart that you present in all I. I haven't seen a lot of them, but you really do bring heart into this, uh, into these interviews. And, uh, I really deeply felt this, uh, this love that, that what you set up was a, uh, was a field of love and heart that in a way it, in that it didn't matter, uh, what we talked about, that if people could watch this from this place of like just the feeling level of what is going on, beyond the words and the heart and the love that is present um, because it was so precious to me and I felt it most of the time uh, and it reflected this piece this invocation to the um, uh, to the 40 verses on truth that Ramana Maharshi wrote uh, that throughout this whole interview and throughout all of life there is this deep hearts meditation going on and when we look back and notice that we and realize that it's been happening all throughout not only during this interview but through all of our life that uh, this really is the message uh, to me that said it all even before he got into the 40 verses right that there is this, um, who we are is this love that is manifesting and showing itself up in relationship. And out of that, these essential qualities of, I could feel your caring, and I could feel your, um, 
and presence, and I could feel your compassion and goodness and purity. Um, and hopefully, if anybody can really tune into that level of what's happening, um, that's what I'd really like people to um, to walk away from and, uh, with this uh, this interview. Well, that's very. Very beautiful and, and very touching, and perhaps to some extent undeserved. But I, you know, I, I just, um, I do feel a, I kind of settle into this thing while I'm having these conversations with people, and and kind of form a bond, you know. And yeah. the other uh, a couple of weeks ago, somebody asked me like, "What are your favorite interviews?" And on the spot, he was interviewing me, and he wanted me to go down my list, uh-huh. and and I thought it's hard to do that because these people all become my friends and you know maybe some are more articulate than others and all but there's there's just this family that's kind of growing of people that I've formed this bond with and there's very it's very much a heart thing as you say and sometimes I talk too much and sometimes I use the same stupid analogies over and over again they get all heady and intellectual but but fundamentally there is this kind of feeling level thing that is resonating to whatever extent I'm capable and I, I really appreciate your, your giving voice to that. Yes, it feels very, very real to me and precious. So thank mm. you. Great. Well, that's a very sweet note to end on, uh, so perhaps we, we should wrap it up. Um, so I've been uh, having a heart session with, <laughs> with Ramana, and uh, this is uh, w- one in an ongoing series of interviews, which hopefully I'll be doing as long as I'm capable of seeing and speaking, because I really love it. Um, so good for the next 20 years, at least, I'd say. Um, and if you'd like to watch more of them, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, which is an acronym for Buddha at the Gas Pump. Uh, there you'll see them all archived. Uh, there's a list of them along the side in alphabetical order, and then there's also a menu item under Other Stuff, which is a chronological list of all the interviews, starting from the very beginning. And uh, so you can explore it either way. Um, you'll also see a discussion group there, which gets quite lively sometimes. Uh, um, Anata Campbell's interview evoked about 900 comments. <laughs> oh, <great>. <laughs> <laughs> Although they weren't, they didn't all stay on topic. It meandered off into different things. But uh, sometimes those discussions are very substantive and interesting. Um, there is a link there to an audio podcast. I know a lot of people don't have time to sit in front of their computers and watch these things, but you can get it on your iPod. Um, and you can also download the MP3 file if you don't want to mess with iTunes and just put it on any kind of audio device. And uh, there's a donate button, which um, I really appreciate people clicking on if they have the inclination and the capacity. It helps to make this whole thing possible. There's also a little link that you can click on to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. And you can also subscribe to the YouTube channel. Some people do that, and YouTube will notify you every time a new one is posted. So there's all sorts of possibilities, and it continues to grow. And uh, and that's about it. So thanks, Rama. <laughs> Namaste. Namaste, and thanks to those who've been listening or watching. And next week, as I mentioned, it will be Eli Jackson Bear for his second interview. See you next time. <laughs>